Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode of the show is supported by We Are One Composites. I've been riding We Are One wheels for three years now and they're absolutely smashing it out of the park with their awesome wheels made in Kamloops in Canada. The team there have worked hard to design and build a wheel that has got the perfect balance of stiffness and flexibility so that you really do get the best of what carbon wheels can offer. The quality is incredible too and the rims look amazing both inside and out without any of the cosmetic touch-ups that you often see on carbon products. If you want to get yourself a set of stock We Are One wheels or their depackaged bar and stem, then downtime listeners get 15% off for the whole of January using the code 2021HEREWEGO at the checkout. That's 2021HEREWEGO, all one word, all lowercase. Head over to weareonecomposites.com now to check out their entire range. Don't forget to make sure you're subscribed to the show. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it drops. It's really easy to do with buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Or there's probably a subscribe button in whatever app you're using to listen to this episode right now. So make sure you press it. I've also got a little newsletter where I'll send you links to interesting bike related articles and videos, show you some of the products that I've been using and really rate and send you links to giveaways and competitions too. You can join the newsletter over on the subscribe page on my website as well and then you'll get an email with a confirmation link that you'll need to click to be able to receive the newsletter so don't forget to do that. If you want to support the show, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop and grab yourself a treat. There's t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies. They're all 100% organic, printed to order and shipped with no single-use plastic. All the proceeds go back into the podcast for equipment and software to keep improving the quality of the show. So a massive thank you to everyone who's already bought something. If you're not already, then please give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast. I've just hit 10,000 Instagram followers, which is awesome. And it means that I can finally share links to the episodes via a swipe up in my stories. Thanks to everyone who follows me there and gets involved in the comments too. Well, this week on the show, I'm joined by one of the founding fathers of mountain biking, Gary Fisher. Gary grew up with cycling in his veins, and this passion took him on a crazy path through road racing, free love, LSD, and popularizing the mountain bike around the world. We sat down for a wide-ranging chat to find out more about Gary's story. We discussed the early days, the growth of our sport, bringing 29ers to production, his dress sense, Gary's thoughts on the future, and much, much more. So, without further ado, here's... Gary Fisher. Gary Fisher, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? They're wonderful, actually. I mean, all things considered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on this year, isn't there? Oh, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I come from a, a group of people that sort of thrives on disruption and a bit of hardship, you know? Okay. And I think most bike people are pretty darn tough and disciplined, you know, in general. I've always appreciated that. And I've always, you know, even when I was, I mean, through the 60s and the whole free love and the whole crazy stuff, I was right in the very, very, very center of it. You know, it's crazy. You know, I uh, hung out with Ken Kesey. I hung out with Jack Leary, Timothy's son. I worked for the bear, you know, uh, I was a Stanley Owsley, uh, Owsley Stanley. He's the guy that made more LSD than anybody on the planet. He also did the wall of sound for the grateful dead. And, um, I used to hang with the grateful dead. I mean, Jerry Garcia taught me how to roll a J God, <laughs> but he used to say to me, 
don't come over here when I'm not here because his girlfriend, his wife, mountain girl, had a thing for me. <laughs> you know what? I hooked up with her after he passed away. <sighs> and I'm still in touch. You know, we're just friends forever. You know? And all that stuff that people think, uh, oh, you know, you hippies. You were a bunch of wild and crazy, stupid idiots. No, that was not the point. I mean, we used to mm, not be happy with some of the kids who were showing up in the Haight-Ashbury because they were just into sex, love, and rock and roll. And um, they had their hands out like beggars, and that was not the idea. The idea was about um, uh, consciousness expansion, about thinking new ways. And yeah, it had some really positive effects, and then it sort of disintegrated, you know, like really good scenes do mm. really quickly sometimes you know i mean i hate ashbury was a cool place for about seven eight months and then, uh, then all the kids showed up and it was not a cool place at all it was like stupid i'd go down there with jack jack leary and we'd be given about a big stack of tickets for uh the carousel ballroom which was the predecessor of fillmore west it was run by the jefferson airplane and the grateful dead sort of a mess actually in the management department and uh we go down to hate street and we'd be giving away free tickets because we needed to fill the place up and we weren't filling it up you know it it wasn't being full and, and the acts were incredible there but oh go down on the street and like hey here's a ticket here's a ticket i go down there with jack and these uh rather the gentleman would say hey give me some of them tickets i want a whole stack you know, the hustlers down there. And man, we'd be doing the, the trot down. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I actually went to Juvie with uh, Jack one time because we got picked up uh, by the cops for, uh, uh, we were 17 and uh, we were underage. You know, we were supposed to be 18. We we're supposed to be in school. So it was a truancy thing. We got thrown at Juvie <laughs> overnight, you know, and got out. Uh let me just wind back a little bit. Am I right in thinking that it was cycling in the first place that kind of led you to get involved in that whole, like the acid tests and all of that scene? Well, it was sort of funny. I mean, um, I had a friend, Steve Lubin. Um, we go to bike races a lot together. And Steve was uh, a junior national champion, you know, on the track and the road. The guy was really hot. And um, we... We go to uh, Berkeley to a station called KPFA on Friday nights, and it'd be at midnight, the midnight special. And that was folk music, man. And that was sort of, you know, we hung out and we go to that fairly often. And then we went to uh, Longshoreman's Hall for the acid test. You know, we went to that thing. I was 15 at the time, you know, mm -hmm. it was incredible. I loved it. So you know, for people that don't know what the acid test is, can you, or the acid tests were, can you explain a little bit about that and what went on? Well, it was Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. And these are up in, um, up around Eugene. Springfield, Oregon is where he hails from, hailed from, he passed away. He wrote a book called, um, you know, uh, uh, One Flew Over the, Over the Cuckoo's Nest and it was made into a movie with uh, Jack Nicholson. And, um, well, that whole, the premise of the movie is like, man, you're not crazy. These people are crazy, you know? And the whole premise of a prankster 
was it, it was hilarious because you know this was like uh, the early '60s, and man, people like were conformist and straight, and just like a, a prankster would mess with their heads, so to speak. You know, prankster didn't really. You know, it, it's like a misconception. They didn't do a lot of drugs. You know, they didn't drink alcohol at all. You know, we'd we'd, we'd uh, smoke weed and then we'd do acid and acid was, you know, that was a sacred moment and, a, you know, a really special thing. And, and it wasn't like every day at all, you know, and that drug teaches you all these other drugs are just garbage, you know, they're really, uh, you know, a, <laughs> a detour from life, you know, and, um, you know, like, uh, the bear, you know, the LSD guy, he would, you know, people, uh, we watch cocaine come into the scene in the Haight-Ashbury and within the Grateful Dead. Oof. A guy from New York shows up. He got this huge bindle and we're all in the house. It's 710 Ashbury Street. And like, uh, he says, it's organic and it's not really addictive. And people believed him. I couldn't wow. believe it. And there, then there came like the eighth ounce bottle of Merck sealed that you could buy on the street for 50 bucks around that time. It was crazy. And then came this thing called a Coke whore. And this is a girl that would do anything to, you know, for a line or whatever. It was disgusting, you know, and it helped, you know, really the scene just sort of dissipated. And then it came 1969, the end of the, the San Francisco scene was Altamont. And I was part of that, <laughs> of organizing that thing in a, in a, you know, it was a mess from the very beginning. Is that uh, where was? Did someone try and shoot Mick Jagger at that? that yeah, event? maybe I was right there at that very moment. And you know, we used to hire the Hell's Angels on a regular basis, and that was because we could trust them. Believe it or not, it really, truly, you know, uh, I'll trust outlaws more than non-outlaws sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the the whole scene at that point, it was kind of the the LSD side of things was I mean, a it wasn't illegal at that point. I think there was a lot of kind of know, government it, experimentation it, as well, right? Oh yeah. Well, this is uh, one of the guys in our bike club um when I was a kid. Uh, it was a Belmont bike club. Uh, Larry Walpole was the president and he was from East London. And he worked for Pan American as a mechanic. And that dude was hilarious. And he took care of me. When I was 12 years old, we'd go on uh, club rides. It'd be 80 miles long. And he made sure I made it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, oh, man. There was another guy in the club, Tom Pruce. And his family owned Pruce Pharmacy. And Tom, well, he would deliver the LSD to Stanford University, right? <laughs> And, you know, and the rest, this group of a lot of the people in the dead, they, they did time at Stanford <laughs> as students. I mean, Mountain Girl did, and she used to program this uh, computer and nobody else could, you know, super smart woman, you know? Yeah. And it's like Tom, um, he got into race promotion and he did the uh, first year he did this race called the Tour del Mar. Uh, it had, you know, uh, of some band, I can't remember, but it wasn't very interesting at all. The next year, he went totally, he was there. He got the Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and Colossal Prom again to play. They played three nights in a row there. But let me back up. On Friday, we had an entourage that started at the, the Ferry Building in San Francisco. 
um, this entourage of about 30 riders, um, two convertibles, one with the dead, one with the Quicksilver in it. And um, so uh, the first stop of the day was the Playboy Club. And well, I was too young. I couldn't go in, so I had to hang out and wait. Second stop of the day was City Hall. The mayor gave us a key. Third stop was uh, down in Redwood City. The mayor there gave us a key. You know, And then that night, there was um, uh, the dead uh, Quicksilver and the Colossal Pomegranate all played at the IDES Hall in Pescadero, California. It was lightly attended. In the three nights of... You know, them playing, there were um, less than 100 people that showed up. Whoa. And, you know, I showed up on a Friday afternoon, and Girl Freiberg, you know, David Freiberg, who is a bass player for uh, Quicksilver, and um, now he does, you know, Todd Rundgren, he does Jefferson Starship, all that. Like, some of these, you know, old musician guys, they, they hang around, and they reform in the bands, and they get the name of the band and everything, but they really weren't in that band in the beginning, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, his... His girlfriend, man, she says, hey, there's all these straw flowers out in back of the place. Let's go check it out. And it's a huge field of straw flowers. And she just grabs me, starts making out with me. I'm going like, I like this place. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was crazy. And then um, the band, you know, they were, somebody gave me a, a CD of you know from uh the grateful dead at the same time and i listened to it and i said god i must have liked these guys this is awful you know i mean it's like they at the concert they used two um these these aluminum altec lansing horns (laughs) they were like that was the pa system the vocals ran through the pa system and they're you know the bass the guitars the drums they're all on their own i mean that was it it was pathetic, you know, and then the bear came along and he created a thing called the stage monitor. It didn't exist before that. You know, can you believe that? So and the bank can hear themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, you know, this thing where you put two microphones right next to each other and it cancels out the feedback from, you know, mm-hmm. and that didn't exist before, you know, and he just got a hold of it and just uh, the band and started, you know, working them you know, as far as like, uh, the sound and everything. And then the band themselves, they actually practiced, you know, I mean, I listened to those early stuff and Garcia is not the guitar player. He became, uh, he can't sing on key and neither can we Oh my God. The two of them could not sing to save their lives. And they practice and singing is one of those things. If you practice it, you will learn, you will learn to sing on key, all these things. It's amazing. And those guys practice, 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 practice like crazy. And they developed this whole sound that we could say was their symphonic sound. And I remember we went to, uh, this gig, it was, um, in the city of San Francisco, it was the black and white ball. And these were the symphony people. And it wasn't cool at all. You know, there's a really straight people and somehow the, the dead landed a gig there. It was amazing. And, you know, we all show up and it's like the, the band and about seven of us, you know, between the, the roadies, the engineers, the managers. And, you know, I was just the kid that hung on and, you know, I hung around a lot and they liked me a lot. And I'll never forget. I had these white bell bottoms on, you know, this fantastic sweater that I got it. We got that Wilkes Bashford. <laughs> <laughs> and like red and long blonde hair and backstage I'm hanging out with Garcia and uh Herb Kane. Herb Kane was the big 
columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, the biggest paper in Northern California. And he, you know, it was, that's fun. I like, I really like hanging with Garcia and talking with him. The guy was super smart. And they started up, you know, and you can find um, now and um, they have a recording of it online, you know, dead net, you know, dead net. I forget exactly the, the website, but there it is. And they started out and Pigpen used to run the band because he could sing on key and he played the organ. He was sort of the leader at that time. And they do three or four songs that are just nasty R&B, you know, good morning, little schoolgirl, and all this stuff. And then, and then they launched off into their symphonic sound. And I swear to God, the symphony people, they just go, huh? And the jaws dropped. And what it was about that through electronica, amplification and how you you know work the sound in the guitars and all that sort of thing you could create these these sounds that had never been created before you know in in music and you know the whole the whole rock and roll scene that was i mean it was i mean people wonder why stuff from that era is so good and well number one you know they didn't have the formula uh number two they didn't compress things as much as they do now Number three, people were just going off and just experimenting like a crazy. So that, that was a real high point to me, you know, the, like just to see the band go that way. And then another was when uh, we uh, made this substance called Orange Sunshine, and that was the Brotherhood of Love and all this stuff. I was on a big farm way up north. And I was there just to uh, really more take care of domestic things. And I was a popular guy with the girls there. There were some girl chemists there. And we did Orange Sunshine. And we did a, uh, this, you know, there's this album called Live Dead. And that was an incredible night. You know, it was the band finally really had their act together. <sighs> you can hear my voice if you go to seven, uh, St. Stephen. Or four minutes into it, I say, you better take it. <laughs> and I scream like a maniac. You know, you can hear this. It's still there. You know, it, uh, it, it was incredible. But things went the heck, you know, like the band, um, the drugs got out of hand. You know, the whole thing. And, you know, Altamont happened and everybody left the city. You know, it was amazing how many people left. And I went to Marin County um, and I started living with a band called uh, New Writers of the Purple Sage, which were an offshoot of the Grateful Dead. And it was great because they didn't, they, they didn't charge me rent. I took care of the house. They'd go out on the road, you know, and, and they'd be gone. I'd just be taking care of everything. And <laughs> I lived there with uh, Willie Legate and he used to call him Way Out Willie. Uh, Jerry Garcia was financing um, him doing a screenplay about Jesus Christ. And Willie was on the same diet as the bear, you know, and that was steak, ketchup, spaghetti, and oranges, and milk. <laughs> I kept the place stocked with that. Um, the bear's, uh, one of his, he had two wives, you know. <laughs> one of them he shared with Jack Cassidy of the, the basis for the airplane. And the other was Roni. And Roni lived with us also. Willie was also on the 36 hour day, not a 24 hour, a 36 hour day, you know? So we're all eccentrics. 
<laughs> and Roni, you know, she said, um, oh, God, she's doing some science stuff on the East Coast these days. And I saw her last year. It was amazing, you know. And uh, she came back to San Francisco because one of our friends had died. Oh, man. Ah! You know, it's that time of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, we all left. Uh, I was hanging out with the new writers of the Purple Sage, you know, and, and that was great. And then I met Charlie Kelly, you know. And that was sort of a mess, but I won't, you know. <laughs> before we before we move on from that kind of the the, the acid years, I guess. Yeah. Like, do you do you think that those experiences helped you kind of create and grow your creative side? Because there's there's oh, a lot of kind of thought behind that, right? Absolutely, you know. And now the kids are doing microdose, you know. And Silicon mm-hmm. Valley, that's a big deal these days, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, uh, the 50th anniversary of the Whole Earth Catalog, I actually wrote for the Whole Earth Catalog for a while. That thing was incredible. I always used to say, this is the catalog of catalogs. It was, a, you know, the, it was in a way the predecessor to, uh, you know, the internet and that you could find things, you know? Mm-hmm. That was amazing. And, uh, oh, God. But, that didn't come till a little bit later. I worked on that thing, but that whole time, you know, was amazing. You know, uh, in that, uh, things change, you know, people's minds change. My mind changed. There's no doubt about it. You know, no doubt about it. You know, we used to do, uh, people would do 50, a uh, hundred, 150 micrograms. And today they do 10. And I think it's much more reasonable. I think we excess too much, too much, too much, you know? Yeah. And that's yeah. why I left the scene. It was just getting out of hand and I just um didn't like uh the night scene. I also I had a light show and that was quite an endeavor. I did that for four years. And we had uh at one point we had ten people in the show. I mean, I'm a kid, you know, and I'm doing this stuff, putting stuff together, you know, making it work. I you know, I got straight A's in metal shop. And in jewelry in high school, I'm good with my hands. I don't build frames. I build lots of frames, but I don't put my hands on them anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I wanted to build a company. I didn't want to be a frame builder. You know, I wanted to hire frame builders because I wanted to cover the earth with bikes because bikes are a good thing. You know, that was it. And, um, we had some opportunity in 1973 in the United States uh, bike sales in that year went to 15 million. Uh, the year previous, they were 4.7 million. The year after, they went down to 7 million. What happened? We had a gas war, you know, and it was a huge bike shortage, like much bigger shortage than what we have today. Um, you know, people, after the gas war was over, they put the bikes in a garage and they stopped riding them. And it's very different now. You know, back then, there were very few people in bike uh, advocacy of any kind. You know, there were about 40 people in the United States. Today, there are 45,000 bike advocates, you know, real bike advocates here in the United States. Um, there, was ver- there were very few people that could work on a bike in those days, you know. So the assembly was awful. And, um, you know, you would go into a shop, there'd be three bikes there, and you'd say, oh, I want it, I want it. And they'd say, no, no. You go order off of these and your bike's going to come in six weeks or something, you know, and it's very different 
today. We have a lot of people that know bike in the United States that know how to do it, you know, and also the bikes were back in those days, you get the English three speed, uh, and, um, the sort of fake, uh, 10 speed, you know, and the fake 10 speed had, uh, the shifters on the stem. They had these extra brake, uh, devices, which made the brakes work really lousy. You know, they had little hard saddles and the tires that go flat on a regular basis, you know, and a position that most people could not assume, you know, they were not trained for it at all. Yeah. So, but that was a, a mess. It didn't stick. And I'm really hoping and I'm really encouraging people to work extra hard in the next year or two to make bikes a permanent part of our life. Because we know a bike is a very simple solution to all these crazy complex problems that we have. Yeah. Big time. Yeah, let's let's hope so. We've got a lot of new new people kind of on bikes and ready to get involved, but now we have to engage with them, right? Yeah. That's right. We have to keep yeah. keep uh keep going with it, you know. Yeah, definitely. And we have to uh propose some big expenditures too. I mean it it uh I know how my father was an architect big time, you know, and he taught me one thing. It's like, um, you need big plants when you have small plants, like you say, Oh, we're getting to use paint and ballards. Let me tell you, everybody in the construction industry and those industries that could help you, you know, they're not, they're not, uh, excited at all. If you've got a big project, this is going to cost a lot of money and we penciled it all out and there's a tremendous return. People will invest money. You know, it's crazy. I mean, you look at things like, okay, Hyperloop. That thing, <laughs> if you get it, really get into the science of it, extremely difficult. Why did Elon Musk hand that off? <laughs> really hard, you know, to get results out of the thing. Um, uh, so, and it's amazing how much energy, you know, they got going for that thing when, you know, you could put into something proven like high-speed rail <laughs> and have real results, you know. It's just, you know, it's the old problem, man. Uh, once you change the gray matter between the ears, everything's easy, right? But that's the point. You have to change that gray matter between the ears, you know, and yeah. you have to work it and everything. And, oh, oh, yeah, we all know this. And we're like bombarded, right? It's incredible, you know, with all the, all the media, all the, everything to do, everything, all the recommendations. <laughs> Pretty wild. Yeah, man, definitely. Let's, let's just take it back to kind of this, the early days of the off-road side of things. Oh, Cause yeah. I think there was, you kind of got involved a little bit with the Larksburg Canyon gang before well, yeah. uh, kind of as you were coming into the Grateful Dead years and that scene. But I think once you, once you stepped away from that, that's kind of when your involvement there maybe escalated and you started thinking, hang on a minute, I like this, but these bikes aren't necessarily up to the job. Well, and you started uh, to think about modifying what was out there. Yeah? Yes. Okay. My first off-road experience was uh cyclocross you know I, I rode my first cyclocross race when i was 14 you know it was you know they used to have one one or two a year and usually be in berkeley and that went on and you know i you go off-road with a bike like that a proper cross bike and um 
you'd ride for two hours and patch tires for three hours. It was, you know, it just wasn't practical. You couldn't let loose on it, any of the downhills and go fast. You know, you'd hit a sharp rock and that'd be the end. Yeah. And, um, Larkspur Canyon gang, I met when I went to Redwood high school, I went to Redwood and, you know, Todd Beeson, uh, good friend, uh, you know, Belle Marco, I married her. My God, she was born of the Canyon gang, you know? And the Canyon gang was drum circles <laughs> and there was PC sauna band, you know, and they were the first damn drum circle I ever saw, you know, <laughs> you know, and you think of how common that became. And they, and, uh, uh, the bike thing was like, okay, Marin County, or you guys say Marin. So I'll say it that way. <laughs> Thanks. County. And, um, they, you could, uh, I drive my mom's Chevy Impala sometimes out in the woods there because there were no gates, no chains. And then people were camping out in the woods. And so the water district, all these guys, they put up, uh, chains across all the, all the, uh, fire road entrances. So the bike became the golden key, you know, and at the time, I mean, the, the Larkspur Canyon gang, um, uh, you know, they were into like just the old authentic bikes, you know, pre-World War II, cause pre-World War II, uh, old clunkers had a 12 inch bottom bracket, you know, and after World War II, they lowered the bottom bracket so a kid could easier, ease more easily get an, get on and off of the bike, you know? So those, those, uh, more modern frames were no good cause you hit your pedals all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I wasn't interested in doing, you know, I went out with these guys a few times. They, they said to me, they knew I was a bike racer. I was way into bikes. I said, Hey, you got to check this out. You got to do this and everything. And I went out with them a few times. It was a lot of fun, but I didn't put anything together right then when I was, I got, I got uh, run out of the road bike scene, Walter Gimber, an Englishman. He was the one that, um, said, Gary, I really like you. There are other people that when Charlie Kelly said, I got kicked out by Bob Tetzloff. I read this last week and no, Bob Tetzloff was a racer and he's a friend of mine. And he says, because I was rebellious, nothing of the sort. Everybody liked me, you know, no, 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 no. That wasn't what happened. And there's a photograph that I saw once that Joe Breeze had up at his museum and it's disappeared. And that was me in that last bike race I rode, uh, in, and it was actually in Fairfax, you know, and I'd met the dead the week before, you know, and, uh, they threw me out cause my hair was over my ears. You see this photo, my hair wasn't down my back. It was over my ears. And I was, I was not a rebellious sort at all. I get written about, you know, and I don't get interviewed before the, the writing goes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, a few times. Uh, this, this, this is one guy that does this, you know? Anyway, uh, that's what happened there. Um, they were nice guys, but it wasn't until later. It was like, I, uh, you got to realize, straight out of high school, even before I graduated, I mean, I was up on this ranch up in far northern California where we were doing Orange Sunshine. When I supposed to be at my graduation for high school, right? And I go in later and pick up my, my, my little graduation book. You know, I, I had a lot of disrespect for my school at the time. Unfortunately, I did put together at one time, you know, 
I put together my gang of kids. Okay, let's do a photo. Okay, we're the Redwood Weed Society, right? And I said, yeah, man. So I went into the yearbook people and I said, hey, we're a club. And the Redwood Weed Society is in the Redwood High Yearbook. Because <laughs> I said it was going to be, you know? <laughs> That's a prankster move. That's a prankster move. Okay? You get that? Pranksters aren't about wild parties, getting drunk and stupid. Prankster's about pranking people. Yeah. Especially straight people that don't get it. That don't want to get it. <laughs> you got it? <laughs> I got it. <laughs> uh, you know, I left, I left school. I hung out with the bands, the dead. Then I came back <laughs> to the Marin County. I said, look, oh, I was down in, oh, okay. I was down in LA, one of the things, and I went on a ride with one of my old uh, friends down there, Bob McNellis, a really good bike rider. The guy was 200 pounds, and he won the Mount Baldy Hill climb. <laughs> he was super strong. The guy would ride a Schwinn Paramount um, because they would guarantee the frame, and the guy would break a frame guaranteed every year. <laughs> Steel frames don't last forever. That's a misnomer. You know, if you ride them hard, if you're riding 400 miles a week, they don't last. I mean, you replace that thing every single year, you know, because they don't, I mean, I've gone through frames, you know, they, they, they work hardened at the, uh, on the seat tube near the bottom bracket and then they break, you know, and it takes a lot of riding where <laughs> <laughs> you get somebody, a good, strong rider on a bike, on a steel bike. They don't last forever. The ones that last forever, you don't want to ride that thing because it's so harsh. You can't stand it. Right. Mm -hmm. Too heavy, you know? Anyway, I came back. I got a job at a bike shop in Marin County, and in walks uh, Bill Fields, uh, and he worked at Bicycling Magazine. And he said, I, "I've heard about you. I need a road tester. I'm the one." And I worked for Bicycling for eight years. I got free bikes every month, you know. And I got it. I got, you know, the money was okay, but that wasn't really what I was after. I wasn't a writer. And I suffered terribly in the beginning to just put it together, but they liked my, they kept me for eight years. They like me. They like what I did, you know, and, uh, <laughs> I met a lot of people in the industry and it really helped. It really helped, you know, and, um, the whole thing with, uh, making the mountain bike thing happen. I mean, come on, man. People rode off-road a hundred years ago. There's no invention part in this. You look at the bikes we made, they were just sort of oversized uh, road bikes. You know what I'm saying? And they, you know, they had the geometry of a Schwinn Excelsior X because that was a found object that we really liked. It, that bike handled pretty well and everything. And uh, it, uh, it wasn't rocket science, but the, what was was trying to select the correct parts. You know, there were these kids. Oh, yeah. The Cupertino boys, right? Oh, I got all my ideas by looking at their bike. Yeah, I looked at their bike and I said, no, I already put together my own clunker. I'm not riding it in this cross race because the cross bike I've got is faster. And you got the wrong brake levers on here. You got to, you know, there were these plastic brake levers that were imitation motorcycle levers that would bend like crazy. Wouldn't pull the cable. You got the wrong brake cables on there. You got bicycle uh, round wound bicycle cables, you know, instead I was using motorcycle cables and Honda brake levers, you know, you got the wrong chain ring sizes on there. You got a 47, uh, 52 double, forget about it. You got a 14 through uh, a 28 on the rear. I noticed all these things and went, huh, 
that won't work. You know what I'm saying? And, and there's some guy saying, oh, that's where Gary got his idea. <laughs> no. Sorry. Bingo. You know, and it's like that. And then um, I went to three different frame builders. You know, Albert Eisentrout, uh, uh, what's his name? Jeff Richmond, and a third one, which turned out the third one was very quick and treated me horribly you know like i uh you know i'm going to japan that was the other thing i had to get a supply chain going so you know there was uh uh eugene chen um dude from san francisco was into a trading company that did pearls and he'd come by our shop all the time i mean oh my god we had like 500 visitors uh in the first year you know from japan about uh 10 from europe and uh one from the United States, one, you know, um, we did the, the bike show in New York, uh, 1981. We did a presentation at the bequest of bicycling magazine for all the major, you know, all the major people were there and we blew their minds. The photos were from Wendy and Larry Craig. Um, now Larry Craig, Larry Craig is the steel guitarist for Neil Young. Did you know that? And he I came didn't. on all the rides that, that dude came on all, you know, and his wife came on all the rides. Well, they got a divorce and Wendy wound up with all the photos. Fine. You know, but man, we would do a slideshow. Okay. There was another guy, Howie Hammerman. That was George Lucas's third employee, <laughs> you know, and he used, he was the sound guy for the sons of Champlin, you know, and there were roadies and the roadies just, they drove the truck, uh, they unloaded the equipment and then they tried to pick up girls. That's what the roadies did. The sound guys, uh, they had to work during uh, the concert and they were intimate with making the sound correct for those artists, you know, different brood of people. And uh, how he got us uh, into George Lucas's uh, screening room in his house on a regular basis. Can you imagine that? Wow. The plunker crowd would show up there and we do this presentation of those slides. And uh, those slides that Wendy and Larry took were in, um, you know, Repack Race, uh, Crested Butte, the Sierra Nevadas. And it was like about five years worth of shooting. And they showed up to everything, right? And I'll tell you, man, that crowd there in New York City of all those bigwigs from the industry, man, their jaws dropped. They went, this is cool. And that set off an avalanche, you know? And at the time, I mean, I was importing TA cranks from France. I was importing, um, you know, these the 26-inch BMX rim, a big alloy rim, you know, from Japan. I was, you know, I was getting in um, oh, Mayfac from France. <laughs> Magura. Oh, my God. Magura, Magura jumped on board early on. I had no money. My father had money. He wouldn't give me a cent. The, the best thing he ever did for me is he, man, he cut me off. I mean, I moved out of the house. I was hanging out with the Grateful Dead. Make your own money. So I did. I did. I did. You know, I just, I, like I say, I've made money my whole life, you know, and I've worked my whole life. You know, I've never taken the handout. I, my father loaned me, he offered to loan me money when I didn't need it. You know, my first loans were from John Finley Scott. You know, he was a UC Davis professor. And he made a bike he called a woodsy bike in 1953. 
And this was made from a Schwinn uh, varsity frame that was sort of swedged out, you know, in, in um, the rear end so you could fit a fat tire. It had a 26 by uh, 175 tires. It had a Sturmey Archer three-speed internal hub with, um, what was it, a, a four-speed freewheel on it, right? Okay. And a drum brake, you know, and he had a caliper brake on the front. Well, uh, I have had, a, I did have a fair amount of experience with the Sturmey Archer uh, hub brake, and they were adequate for uh, street use, but for off-road use, they'd overheat and they'd die. You know, and the drum brakes that I used on my bike, you know, I put together was from, um, was a French drum brake, 160 millimeter diameter, uh, flanges, you know, really a big tandem brake, uh, 12 millimeter axle, because you'd be surprised with the old school freewheel. Um, it isn't the shock, uh, that, uh, bends the axle, breaks the axle. It's when you point the bike uphill, you put it in a super low gear and the chain breaks the axle. (laughs) (laughs) If the pressure going up the hill will break the axle, you know? So, uh, you had to either use an, if you're going to use a freewheel, you needed an oversized axle. So, uh, you know, 12 millimeter on this tandem hub, uh, the old Phil Wood hubs, they had an oversized axle that worked. And then Shimano, you know, they had their free hub and I, you know, I started putting Shimano free hubs on bikes, you know, almost immediately, you know, cause they were light, you know, and they worked really well. They didn't break. You know, they, they were, they were great. And, um, anyway, it was a mess in the very beginning. Cause he had to import all these different things. So I ran off, you know, I said, Eugene Chen said, man, you got to come to Japan. You got to come to Japan. So, um, okay. I, I get a ticket. I'm a, and then, um, my frame builder calls me up. I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. Okay. You can come. He comes and he, we go to the first, uh, maker. Oh, this is terrible. You know, he says, the other guy, we go to the second maker, the third maker, the fourth maker. He's just going, these guys are horrible. These guys are horrible. This is awful stuff. I mean, he's saying uh, he wanted to get a lug set, you know, made and everything. So he's, you know, we're talking to Ishiwata, Tange, all these different guys, you know, lugs, different lug makers. And he's poo-pooing me doing any kind of bike over in Japan. I guess why? He wanted to keep my business, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, finally, June's a Kauai the president of uh, Suntour. And, you know, and we saw all kinds of people. I mean, I mean, Nito, um, Ishiwata, Tange, you know, Sugino, you know, um, on and on. Shimano, of course. Uh, anyway, Junsus Kawai, the president of the Suntour says, I know these guys are good. We're going to send you to them. So the, the actual welder was Toyo Frame. The assembler, painter, and everything was Panasonic. Panasonic okay. had this factory. The holy Toledo, man. They put tubes in one end. It silver-sided these frames together, did the paint jobs, and not a single human hand touched it, right? Amazing. And, uh, and this, this is early 70s, yeah? Oh, no, no. This is 1981. Okay. By that okay. time. And, you know, and um, they agree to make our bikes. Uh, and I said, well, I'll, uh, I'll get you a drawing. You know, and I had it. I... I could draw. My father was an architect and he taught me how to draw. Duh. You know, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we use pencils and all kinds of things, you know, these, <laughs> I still got the stuff, you know, my father passed this last year. My mother passed this last year and I've been going through the house. We inherited the house. Holy Toledo. 
And it's like all oh, this old drafting equipment. I just love it. You know, the electric erasers, the, you know, the stuff that's sharpened uh, the pencils properly, you know, oh, amazing. Anyway, stuff, yeah. so I have my guy, Craig Mitchell. Craig Mitchell was a genius. Craig Mitchell made a frame for uh, uh, Charlie Kelly before Joe Breeze did. And Charlie Kelly didn't like it. And therefore, Joe Breeze's frame was the first successful frame, right? Okay. That's good. Okay. Craig was a genius, damn it. And I loved hanging out with that guy. The other guy that I loved hanging out was, um, Doug White. That's another genius, you know? And they, and like, and then this guy, Phil Brown and he, you know, all through, well, Craig committed suicide. You know, I just, I just, it just kills me. I, it, I was so good. And, you know, so anyway, Craig's going to send a drawing and the frame builder dude says, ah, let me send a frame. That'll be much better. I say, okay, send a frame. So the guy sends a frame, um, Panasonic, Toyo, they make the counter sample. They send it to me and the geometry is all caca. What? See, they can't do it. They can't do it. See, I go to Chinatown, I buy a ticket. 400 bucks. I jump on a plane the next day with that stinking frame. I go to Panasonic and I lay it on the frame that was sent to Panasonic. It matches exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, and I got in a beef with this guy. He sues me. I counter sue him. He sends out, he sends out notice to every one of my vendors saying I'm out of business. Then he sends letters to all of my dealers saying, I'm out of business. Send the money directly to me. I nailed him in court over that one. My attorney nailed him. That was not legal. You know, you don't do that stuff. I mean, it's like, it's fair to steal all my, uh, you know, everybody that was uh, doing stuff for me. It's, there's a lot of stuff that's not nice, but it's fair. That's illegal. Yeah. That one was illegal. So, my God, I parted ways with that guy. You know, I don't have him to blame anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, that I was a road racer and I was a good road racer. I was first category, you know, and I realized, you know, I was there at the Olympic training center in 1979 and the national team coach doesn't really like me. He called me a lousy groovy, you know, and said, Eddie Bursevich, he's from Poland. And I wasn't on a really good team. And I wasn't the leader, you know, and I realized with road racing, you must be on a good team. You must be a leader or, you know, you're not going to be a winner. And I enjoy being a domestique and, you know, and I rode a lot with Bob Lamont, Greg's dad. And with the kid, Greg, holy Toledo, I was, you know, and riding with Greg, you realize that like, I'm not special. <laughs> <laughs> Greg was special. Oh my God. He was good. You know, he was amazing, but Greg had three great tragedies. You know, he got shot. He never had a team that really worked for him. And, um, man, he didn't get the PR that, uh, Lance did. And that really bothered Greg. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, I mean, Greg, He'd get, you know, a half an hour worth of coverage during the Tour de France, you know, once a week. It was like nothing. You know, it was a huge revelation, it, revolution with the, the Lance years, you know. 
but uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I was there at the Olympic Training Center in 1979. And then our, our president, Carter, says, we're going to boycott these Olympics. And at that moment, I said, oh, time to start the bike company. Okay. You know, and I thought of this name for it called Mountain Bikes. I thought of that name. <laughs> Not my mechanic. <laughs> no. You know, and no one was using it, you know, because we got out there in the field and nobody said, hey, stop. I'm already using that. And um, then my partner, you know, at the time, he hired a really cheap lawyer and uh, the name got rejected because it's too descriptive. These are bikes uh, that, uh, you know, they're obviously bikes to be used in the mountains. And, you know, a good lawyer could argue around that saying, no, they're useful anywhere which is the truth. And we lost that name thanks to his ineptitude. You know, and it's like I was working for bicycling at the time too. And it had to disappear from this. You know, I remember I disappeared for a month and a, in a week, you know, I could do this huge road test at bicycling. And I had, we had 35 bikes to ship and my, my partner couldn't figure out how to package a bicycle and ship it out. In, you know, in six weeks. And then people were asking me that wanted to loan me money. What's he do? And it was like, every time we'd try to talk about money, the guy would disappear from the room. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so then it was like, uh, we were in debt, you know, things had gone, you know, we were like, and, and it was like, I couldn't get loans from people because I had this guy that nobody believed in, you know, the people with the money. And so I took the walk around the block and said with him and said, look, I want to buy you out. So he basically settled for, I didn't have to raise any cash because, uh, I gave him a forgiveness of debt, you know, 40,000 bucks, you know, forgiveness of debt. I gave him a, a bike and an Apple computer. And then later, you know, he signed it all off. You know, the attorney's still around. The papers are still around. You can go look at that stuff. The attorney can come in and talk to you today. And, um, you know, I guess he was disappointed that he gave it all away for a little more than 40,000 bucks, but the guy never was a financial genius and never, you know, and you take the next venture he went into, it went belly up and he actually, you know, stiffed a lot of his, uh, uh subscribers, you know, and that's uh, And he can blame that on Don. Don was the other guy, his partner there. So, Hey, whatever, you know. And that's that's when mountain bikes became Fisher bikes for the first time. Yeah, when you when you took the full control of that business. Well, yeah, you know, I had to have a a name like that. You know, I couldn't use mountain like mountain bikes had gone generic by then. You know, it was it, the horse was gone. You know, so it needed to have. You know, that was the most that was the easiest thing to do. Yeah, that, but it was the, you know, and like he's saying the business was reformed. No, it wasn't. I just like, you left, you know, you were bought out. That's it. The business stayed the business, you know, <laughs> come on. Yeah, yeah. Why would we and, do that? You know, <laughs> and a, a lot of the, the early years of the business, I guess, was a lot of your role was marketing mountain bikes, right? Because no wow. one knew they existed. No one knew what they were. Yeah. Like, how did you, how did you go about doing that? giving mountain bikes a profile. My mother passed away this year and she used to say to me, she used to say to me, even in this last year, she said, Gary, you're doing their job for them. You know, it was like a little voice. I can't make that voice. I'm almost crying. You know, I love my mom so much, 
And, you know, she taught me publicity and so did my, my grandfather. You know, I mean, I got into the LA Times when I was seven years old. You know, my mother puts it in. You know, it's like a, we, we made our own Disneyland, you know, in the backyard. And like, hey, I got a story for you because you got to realize uh, that people are looking for stories, good stories, each and every day. And if you give them a good quality story, man, they'll run it. And that's what I did. You know, we got, we got in, you name it, man. I mean, we got in these magazines. It was amazing. And not just uh, bike magazines. I mean, I was working for the bike magazine, you know, and I got the story, a cover story uh, about mountain bikes in Bicycling Magazine. Um, and then um, my ex, uh, you know, partner, I said, come on, send something, send a story out to outside. So he sent it out. It got rejected. He said, uh, it got rejected. I said, Charlie, Charlie, call him up and ask him what you need to do. Uh, that's not going to work. That's not, you know, and I'm like a badger, badger, badger. I like, he does it, rewrites it, gets rejected another time. Uh, and then he rewrites it again and it got run. Damn it. It's called persistence, you know, green eggs and ham. You know that story from Seuss? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I show that to my sales guy. Be pleasant, be amusing, don't be a pain, but be persistent. And you come, and it comes through. You know that. Anyway, you know, Ed, the Joe Murray, what a guy. You know, he comes in as uh, a mechanic. He starts sweeping the floor and all this. And there was a story on him. You know, and the story was in this magazine called On Your Own. And On Your Own was 11.5 million circulation. And it was very targeted. It went to every high school senior in the United States just before they were going to graduate. It had one advertiser, you know, the U.S. Army. And we got the cover story. And it was Joe. Joe was, you know, this mechanic and. Started by sweeping the floor and rapidly advanced, you know, set the record in the house for building the most bikes a day. And then he started racing and, you know, he comes out and he wins his first race and people say, well, so-and-so wasn't here and -and so-and-so wasn't there. So we'll see. He wins the second race. He wins the third race, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. He wins seven races in a row. This guy's hot. So. The national championships that year are out in Colorado and at altitude. So I sent Joe out to Crested Butte, you know, a month before the event. Cause I know, I mean, there was a great athletes out there, Don, Steve Cook, the Cook brothers, great people, you know, that I knew Joe needed at least three weeks to acclimatize. And, um, so he, he loses the a mountain bike race the first week. He loses a second week. And then, you know, he takes a week off. The national championships are happening. Andy Hampton shows up, but Joe won. <laughs> he won the damn race. Yeah. It was so killer. It was like, like the, and the story it was this little dream story. I mean, we got in, you know, cosmopolitan, popular mechanics. I mean, scientific American. I mean, you name it. I mean, I would, my mother taught me, you go to the newsstand, you look for, you, first you have the ABC list, you, you know, of who's the top circulation. 
And then you go to the newsstand and you pick up this nice thick magazine that has a really good ad ratio. And I would just start cold calling the list of names. You know, they're the editors. And I'd nail it. You know, I'd nail it time and time again, you know. And then we'd send him a really good article. You know, uh, we had an employee, Jeff Couch. Jeff Couch, um, he, he was a good writer. And stuff that he wrote would just get, you know, like winning magazines. They just published our press releases verbatim, verbatim. You know, it was amazing. You know, so uh, it, we were good at press. And then um, the video stuff, you know, really good at that. You know, all of the, I've always been good. My grandfather, you know, he was a script supervisor and he worked with so many actors. Oh my God. And they loved him because he, he was the one telling the actor what to say, you know, um, he'd bring Ronald Reagan, Joan Crawford and Errol Flynn to our house when I was a little kid, you know, and he would coach me on how to stand in front of the camera and how to speak. Cause that was his gig. He took, you know, uh, Taking the movies from silent to talkies, the actors had to learn how to speak, literally. They could not use the King's English. That would be speaking down to the American people. And so it was a study of all the different, uh, you know, language, English language, but, you know, all the different sounds within the United States because that was the market. And we call this today... American broadcast English. <laughs> My grandfather's desk is in the Smithsonian. I mean, he did movies like Captain Blood, you know? He did uh, uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Oh, my God. He did uh, uh, Stanley Krubeck's Lolita, you know? Wow. It's like crazy, you know? And he did about you know, hundreds of movies, you know, over the years. And the big producers and stuff, they, I've... I've been going, you know, I've been going through all the old stuff. My mother collected a lot of stuff. I've been going through the house and all these things. And I find these letters from like incredibly famous people, you know, producers and saying uh, that they really appreciated what my grandfather did, you know? So I learned from them. I learned how to do it, you know, and it was a magic formula. And it's like, you got to have a, you know, here's the three things you got to have. You got to have a, a great design. That is, you know, hire really good designers, you know, hire people that that, uh, can craft a great product and everything. You got to have a lot of hype and then you got to deliver, you know, I mean, like in the first year, uh, you know, it's like the, the, my goofball partner, he says, oh, we didn't have any idea. This is like three weeks ago. He's saying this, we had no idea, you know, what was going to happen. We didn't have a plan and we didn't know we were going to sell more than a dozen bikes a year. We sold 160 bikes the first year and close to 1,000 the second year. I definitely had a plan. And that 160 was about 50% of all the mountain bikes at that point, right? Well, yeah, you know, at that point. And, you know, and then uh, Mike Sr. came out with his bike, which I expected. That's like, that's a sign that you're doing things right. I go down to Mike's place and it's like, holy Toledo. There's a, you know, he brings me in the back. I'd go buy stuff from Mike uh, when I couldn't get parts from elsewhere cheaper. And Mike, dude, damn well, I was selling a lot of product, you know, <laughs> he was doing something and I sold four bikes to Mike and then, um, you know, I expected him to copy it and he did. And he was the other big driver in, you know, helping along the Japanese supply chain because you needed product. You know, I couldn't, <laughs> you know, you had to make people happy or they're just not going to do it. They're not gonna Mike, Mike's the founder of Specialized, right? For people that That's don't know right. the name. 
And I've known Mike forever, you know, from the beginning of his business and everything. And, you know, he's, he, we're, we're good friends. We have respect for each other. You know, that's, that's for sure. You know, good stuff. Hey, you've, you've always kind of been well known for your sartorial elegance, shall we say. Ah. <laughs> and even back in that first bike shop, I think you wore suit and tie. Where, where does that come from with you and why do you feel it's so important to what you do? Well, come on. I mean, it's a Hollywood thing, you know, uh, how you dress, you know, you got to outdress your crowd, but not too much, you know, <laughs> it's like that. And I, I've got photos of me, you know, come on back in the sixties. I've always had a knack for clothing, you know, and it's, but to be honest, <laughs> I come to London and I've got friends there that are real tailors that really know what they're doing. Oh, I've learned a lot from them. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm such a country bumpkin compared to, you know, I mean, that, that London is where a man goes to dress, you know, and it's, you know, like there are three people in San Francisco that could possibly make a suit. There's uh, 30 in LA, there's 300 in New York, and there's 3000 in London. So you're going to find what you want in London, you know? So I, uh, you know, it's a, and I've had fortunate connections, you know, like, uh, well, with Paul Smith, obviously. Yeah, um, big fan of cycling. Yeah, I was in his shop on Floral Street, and one of the employees says, uh, Paul would like to meet you. <laughs> you know? And I started a whole collaboration. We did, a, uh, you know, bikes for a 24-hour race and a kit and everything. And that was crazy. And, I, you know, I, my friends, uh, uh, Pete the Painter and Prairie Prince. Prairie Prince was uh, the original drummer for the Tubes. And he now uh, tours with uh, or works with Todd Rungan. And he uh, has done a lot of airbrush art in the past. He's done a lot of stuff for me. And Pete the Painter, you know, and they're here in San Francisco. And they did a pinstripe bike. Oh, man. And it was, you know, <laughs> Pete does a, the pinstripes, you know, and he uses a, he, none of the cats in his neighborhood have whiskers anymore. <laughs> <laughs> He's super good, you know. But that was crazy, you know, that whole thing was great with Paul Smith. But, uh, and then, you know, he gave me a great deal on clothing. It was fantastic. You know, and, uh, other guys here, you know, oh, I got a suit out of reflected threads. It's also uh, Guy Hills, Dashing Tweets. I've known him for a while now, and he's quite an educator. He's uh, introduced me to a number of uh, tailors, you know, and, it's really interesting to just learn the history of clothing and then um, the stuff you can do and everything. So, and then, uh, oh, Tom Baker is a good friend of mine now too. He's like a, he does rock and roll clothing, Sir Tom Baker. And he's done like everybody. I mean, Mick Jagger, everybody, you know, <laughs> uh, he's hilarious. So I go to London and uh, he's in Soho. We just go carouse and have a lot of fun. You know, it's, awesome. he's, he's a rock and roller you know, total, you know, and, and, uh, oh, Edward Sexton. I've had, I got two suits from him and one of them is made with the uh, reflective threads, you know, that, the the tweed that, uh, Guy Hills produced and everything. And that suit, holy Toledo. If I wear it on the street and, you know, a car, uh, lights or anything, they'll light up my whole body and people just, <laughs> you know, and just stop, you know, they just, it's so funny, you know, so, you know, I decided about 20 years ago, I'm not 
wearing t-shirts anymore. I can't pull it off, you know? And it's like, I don't, I don't need to do that. I'm going to wear clothes that make me happy and make everybody around me happy too. That's it, you know? And it works for me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, if it makes you feel good, then that's got to be a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the point. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, you had a huge success with the marketing and the brand grew, the sport grew. You've been a you know a huge yeah. part of that growth. And it, it led to Trek um, eventually buying Gary Fisher in 1993. Yeah. Uh, and then ran kind of the two brands together for, for a good, a good few years as well. And a, a big part of that you spent kind of, I guess, using Trek's resources to work on R and D and, and taking the opportunities there. And, and a big part of what people probably know you well for is, is the 29er, right. And bringing that to the mass market. Yeah. 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 The Trek I, I've been, I've been super happy with Trek. You don't understand, you know, and, and that whole thing of like, you know, let's winnow down a number of brand names. You know, whose idea that was mine <laughs> because it's like, they were so lousy at marketing their names. You guys need to focus. And the key thing that's happened the last four years, we hired new people in marketing. They're young. A lot of them are female. And you know what? They're super smart and uh-huh. we're super smart to listen to them. <laughs> so that's sort of like really made a, been a radical change with the whole group. Now the 29er. Okay. Goodness gracious. Come on. Now, first off a hundred years ago, do you know what the two most common sizes were in bicycle? 30 and well, no, 28 and 32. Okay. Okay. And you know, this whole thing, I mean, I knew the history of mountain bike and mountain bike. I mean, we just used what was available, right? I mean, in 1980 or 81 or something, I mean, I, I uh, got a hold of Jeff apps, right? Cause we, you know, I found out he existed. I was like, wow, look at this completely independent of us. And he's doing the same thing. And at the same time was also Victor Vincente, uh, uh, in LA. He had a bike called the Topanga, you know, it was an off-road bike, 20 inch wheels, you know, and he, we had no, he had no idea we existed. We had no idea he existed. There he was, you know, loving the off-road, but Jeff apps, he used 700 C tires, uh, Haka Pavalta from, uh, Finland. And, um, he had 650 B tires. So I made six, uh, 650 B frames, complete bikes. And I made 10, uh, 700 C uh, bikes with these tires, the tires, uh, they were what? 40, I think they were 44 millimeters wide uh-huh. and they were light and man, that bike was fast, but the tires we cut, you know, they were too light Yeah, and landed. I would have to sell the tire for $110 each. And at the time you could get a 26 by 2125 Unirail knobby. For $11.95 retail at any bike shop, any bike shop in the United States. And I said, this is going to be the size because I am not, we are not big and powerful enough to supply this for everybody. It would be a great uh, disservice. I mean, the whole bike would cost a whole lot more. It was just like, nah, can't do this at this time. But, you know, I would speak with other guys like Charlie Cunningham. 
okay? And you're aware of him. He, another real genius, you know, and a real true innovator. Great guy. And, um, you know, I remember sitting at the top of Pearl Pass at Charlie and saying, you know, we got to put bigger wheels on these bikes because we're, we're surrounded with these huge boulders, you know, and these scree fields and everything. And I'm joking. Yeah. A 12 foot wheel might work really well here, you know, but it, you know, and this conversation went on, Charlie was at the time, uh, well, they formed WTB, uh, wilderness trail bikes, you know, uh, Mark Slade, Charlie Cunningham. Um, and I kept saying, you know, Mark, uh, in 19, what was it? 80 or no, 98. We're at the bike show at uh, Friedrichshafen, right? Eurobike. Mm-hmm. And at the time, WTB was supplying our race team with tires. And I said, come on, man. We've been talking about this idea of making a bigger wheel forever. Can we do a, I want to do a 700C tire. That's this, you know, Velociraptor tire, the exact same one our team is riding on. And I want to play around with it. And he said, okay, I'll make the tire. So about three months later, I get this call. Hey, I got the tire. Cool. You know, I run down to WTB, you know, and put the tire in a rim and inflate it. And we measure the outside diameter and is 28 and seven, eight inches. I said, I said to Mark, I said, Hey, we're Americans. We're going to call this thing a 29er. And I put that label on it, right? The 29er, right? It's like, um, I like to say I made the first mountain bike because in a, in an intellectual sense, I called it a mountain bike, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the same with the 29er, you know, the same, same thing, <laughs> but it had problems, you know I mean? And then I built a frame, you know, actually two frames, you know, that were as much made the, uh, the geometry is, uh, I tried to make two bikes, one with 26, one with 29, and they were as identical as possible. And then I went out and for six months, I used a polar heart rate monitor and I'd, uh, do these routes where I'd, uh, a, B it, you know, I'd go, uh, a lap on the 26, a lap on the 29, you know, reverse the order, all this stuff. Then I'd print out the results on transparent sheets and, uh, compare. And what I found was uh, the 29er was 3% faster on average. And it's like, holy Toledo, this is something, you know. And uh, Aaron Mock, who is the head of bikes uh, at the Trek, and he was, you know, a uh, product manager for Fisher at the time. Well, you know, I got him a bike and he said, this thing works. Wow. You know, and there are major problems in that. <laughs> it was really hard to get the um, tire makers and fork makers to get going on it. And we got a lot of negative pushback and it was really funny. I got this call from, um, Oh, oh Mr. Stefano at Shimano. He was a marketing guy. And he said, Gary, you got a huge problem. And it was my friend, uh, you know, out of Crested Butte, Wes Williams, who I like Wes. I love Wes, you know, and Wes would call up, the magazine editors and just hammer them on why a 29er was better and everything. And, and, um, you know, Mr. DeStefano was saying these editors all hate the whole project. That was a problem. And we had another problem. Uh, the bike wasn't legal, you know, with the UCI, the UCI had a rule that said the wheel should be no larger than 26 inch. 
well, I said, the hell with this. And I went and I arranged an appointment. Um, I went to Switzerland. I went to the UCI. You know, uh, I met with Hein Verbuggen. Calls me into his office. And I told Hein what he was doing right and what he was doing wrong. <laughs> I did. You know, I told him, you got to get bigger into BMX. And he did. You know that? So anyway, then there's this committee meeting, you know. And they tell me, you know, I'm talking to, I'm saying, look, the mountain bike, and this is like, you know, 2000 around that year, the mountain bike has not been settled. You know, the mountain bike is still in development. The road bike's much more settled. You cannot put these limitations on the mountain bike. And in addition, this particular bike is actually safer. You know, you're going to crash less. And consequently, you're going to get your asses sued, especially in California, for not letting people ride a safer bike. They came back at me. They'd say, look, if we allow 700C, we're afraid that people are going to start bringing cyclocross bikes. Yeah, because your courses suck. They're no good. They're not mountain bike courses. Hmm. So I left that meeting. Then I held a vote with all the teams, all the World Cup teams. Got voted down because the World Cup teams all figured. I mean, the Fisher team voted for it. You know, it, it, you know the Trek team voted it down. And that was because the mechanics, they didn't want to bring two bikes, extra bikes, you know, because they figured they'd have to bring a 26 and a 29. Yeah. Um, and then a couple weeks later, they said, okay, it's legal. And I figured they didn't want to tell me it wasn't a mountain bike. <laughs> but more importantly, come on. They started making courses. They were real mountain bike courses. I mean, look at it. You know, it, I mean, it, it was a mess. I was a... I was uh, part of Norba and the Federation USA Cycling for 20 years. I was on that the board of trustees, and it's the lousiest board I was ever on. They'd lie to us, and they'd ignore us, you know? It was, it was a real waste of my time. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's changed hands. At that time, Lisa Voigt, John Voigt's sister, was in there, and let me tell you, man, she would make special deals of everybody, all these promoters and everything. What a mess, you know? And then and she's not around to blame anymore. But it's, it's you know, the Federation, it's changed though. You know, it's like we we did the, it was when Petso won in Atlanta. You know, remember the Atlanta Olympics? Everybody, yeah, yeah. everybody in the industry thought, oh, mountain bike's going to explode. You know, it's going to be great. The sport is going to be fabulous. Then you saw the show and said, this is like really dull to watch, you know? And it was really expensive to produce. There were like 52 cameras on course. It was nuts, you know? It was like super expensive to make the stuff, in it, and it was just bad TV, you know? And then we had an intern, that uh, Phil Milburn, and nobody knows where he is today, but like he uh, got assigned to uh, find uh, the television for the ESPN contract to find that the producer, and he hired the cheapest one he could find. And it was awful, awful. You know, and it all went away. You know, and it was a combination of the courses were all found courses up at ski resorts and things. And the ski resorts loved having a national up there because they'd have a national title event that they could uh, publicize that, that's really cool. Uh, they would fill the condominiums for a whole week with the teams and they didn't have any 
pesky spectators. <laughs> <laughs> what a mess, you know? And it's like, uh, I'm friends with Sharon Fuller, who is a head of global media at uh, Red Bull. Mm-hmm. And that organization made mountain biking um, watchable. Have they not? In a big way, yeah. It's one of the questions I had for you, actually, was how how important do you think Red Bull has been for mountain biking, certainly in the last five or ten years that they've been involved with it? Uh, yeah. Well, they have been uh, super important for the sport, right? Um, the other thing that's been important in the last uh, 20 years are trail builders. I mean, oh, my God, they're fabulous. You know, the stuff we used to ride. I mean, I went to the 25th anniversary of the first European World Championships, and it was in France. And uh, they said, hey, we're going to have it on the original course. The original course was horrid, you know, (laughs) awful, you know. And it just reminded me, I mean, these courses were terrible. Uh, And the people that design, um, you know, I went to also last year, I went to the Red Bull Rampage and uh, met is the first time for me. And oh, wow, what great athletes and the builders of the, you know, the jumps and stuff, they use, uh, they use real mathematics, you know, <laughs> they, uh, one of the guys told me that he's coming up with an algorithm to figure things out. You know, they use the, uh, Diameter of the wheel, the weight of the wheel, the wheelbase, you know, all these things. Because if they don't do it right, they die, you know. <laughs> and that must have been an incredible experience for you from from seeing mountain biking from all the way back from oh, the yeah. very, very early days to be sat at Rebel Rampage. So did you ever imagine where the sport would go? Well, yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, I knew what the potential was, but, uh, uh, you know, we blew it in a lot of ways and I'm really super pleased that we have so many great people. You know, it's like people say to me, Oh, Gary, I'm so grateful for you to bring in a mountain bike. I say, look, I'm really grateful for you to buying in on the whole program and being part of it and everything. And it's, uh, you know, all these incredible people that have joined, uh, the whole movement, but my big thing right now is that i want to take those uh trail builders and i want to move them closer and closer and closer to urban areas um we have a thing uh raise indoor mountain bike park and that's been going on for over 15 years in ohio in cincinnati ohio in a big ass uh, parachute factory and this guy has taken people of all abilities all abilities and, um, you know, they've got jumps, they've got skinnies, they've got stuff that's hard to do. And then they got a cross country course, right? Anybody could ride it. Right. And, um, it's a lot of fun. And this is what I want in the urban areas. And we're going to blast. I mean, I go to the urban leaders and say, look, we're going to blast right through your buildings. We're going to go right over the streets because this thing is quiet, the bicycles, and it doesn't pollute. And, um, we're going to make, uh, features and go arounds because we know kids, and people and humans, when they do things like this, uh, they become, uh, all their systems improve. We know kids show up to school more settled, you know, when they ride a bike, when they got, they got stuff to do on them and everything. And, um, it's fun and damn it, this society needs more fun. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, how are you going about doing that? Cause it's a huge, I mean, that's a huge project to get everyone bought to do that. 
It, the illustrations are very important, really good ones. So I've been working on some of those and then, um, just having the, the platform to do it, you know, and, um, that's been more and more speaking engagements and things like that, you know, and we'll find a way we're going to do it because our cities need to be reinvented very definitely. It's like, uh, the hyperloop thing. That's really hard. It's really crazy, but it needs to be focused on just moving goods. Instead, I have a 12 foot diameter pipe. It needs to be no bigger than four feet and it needs to move goods, you know, not humans because humans are really delicate, you know, and it's really hard to isolate them inside that tube, a vacuum tube and make everything work. Oh my God. You get it. You know, you, there are some really good from people actually doing it. There's some really good studies right now on how difficult it is, you know, and that's, you know, we need to remove a lot more delivery trucks. They got to get off of the streets. They're awful, you know, and if we could have the pipeway and then huh, bikes, you know, cargo bikes are amazing, you know, it'd be a lot happier world, you know, and that's what we're going to do. Redesign our cities. I want to do it. My father was a designer. <laughs> I know a bit about it. I've been getting more and more into that whole area of it. You know, all the politics of making things, you know, California is a mess. You know, we've been, uh, for we, you know, Marin County here, Marin County, sorry. We started this thing called low growth back in the seventies. And, um, it's become, it's just, we need 10 million more houses in all of California because we have uh, a big time shortage and it results in overcrowded housing. That is, you know, you'll get uh, four people living in a room. You'll get eight people using a single bathroom. It's why LA is incredibly infectious right now with COVID. This is the reason why these families are all jammed together. And all these houses that they live in, they all have this requirement that uh, you have so many parking spaces. They all have all these, I know about all these zoning requirements, you know, and it makes houses really expensive. This, you know, the housing just, you know, you take away the parking requirements from an apartment building and you have uh, saved uh, the costs of about 30% of that apartment building and you can offer a cheaper building. You know, all this stuff got built in by the automobile guys. These guys were geniuses, you know, on how they manipulated the mines and manipulated the policies to get what they wanted. And they took over all our streets and it's not right at all. It's so bizarre. You know, our streets are so violent and you got the same thing going on there. I mean, I've ridden around London and uh, I mean, the big lorries and everything you've taken up every inch, you know, and the attitude and everything. <laughs> Pretty scary stuff. You yeah. Know? Big time. And, yeah. So that's all that stuff, you know, has got to change. And what is the hardest thing to change? the gray matter between the ears. And that's what has to be worked. You know, people cannot imagine their society working without their car. I mean, come on. It's my rumpus room. It's my makeup room. It's my kitchen. You know, it's like people doing all this stuff in their cars as they're driving. You know, I'm being really efficient and deadly. You know, it's crazy. You know, and they, uh, they get all this free space and everything. <laughs> It's so crazy. It's like uh, American average, 1.3 passengers per vehicle. And you do the math and it's like, there's no way 
these guys can deliver on promise. They promised they'd get us around in a safe way, and they have failed. And it's time that we take back their right-of-ways, because that's what it's all about is right-of-ways. You know? And they have failed. They don't deliver enough humans. They, uh, they create um, death by massive crushing and death by fine particulate. You know, and they make our, it's so dysfunctional. You know, you take a step back and go like, we are out of our minds. And, you know, you take, uh, now we have examples like Paris, the mayor of Paris. Amazing. You know, that took uh, some real, some real guts, you know, and the same of Barcelona now, you know, and there are other cities, you know, that are trying this whole concept, you know, changing things, you know, making a livable city. <sighs> it's exciting stuff, though. Yeah. In a and big way. And then they're facts. I mean, it's like 18% of United States gross domestic product is dedicated to healthcare. All the other countries, advanced countries, are between 9 and 11% um, of cost. You take that spread between 11% and 18% of American gross domestic product. And that's a bigger number than the Chinese debt service and the federal debt services combined. Wake up, my friend. Next, it's like health. Oh, my God. 30% of American 10-year-olds are pre-diabetic. And third, for the first time in history, American uh, um, you know, longevity, our lifespan, is going south. You know, this is a crisis. Uh, I read the, I raised the red flag of crisis and I ask you, do you have a solution? I'm listening. <laughs> I have a solution. I have a solution and I do. And yeah. I can argue this through and through and through. I mean, you know, you think about it. I mean, 50% of Americans, they don't sing, they don't dance. You know, the only thing they do physical is this is my face. This is my body. This is my steering wheel. Get out of way, my way, man. It's a sport getting home. You know, it's insanity. It's crazy. And it's yeah. totally depressing. It is. Yeah. Do you think, do you think e-bikes are a big enabler for improving that situation? Because it kind of, it lowers the barriers to entry, it improves yeah. the range, all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And the guys that have marketed it correctly, Compare the cost of your automobile, which in the United States, uh, the average is, you know, over $9,000 a year and um, to a bike and a bike is insanely cheaper. And then it's like, it's after you do it for a while, you figure out this is how I can get stuff done really quickly in a city. It's a, you're the fastest person in town. I mean, and you know what it is? I mean, I see these guys with the speed pedalic bikes and I look at them in the eyes and this is the thing, man. And what they're, and it's like, these guys are like, I'm the fastest guy in town. I've heard of a helicopter and it's the truth, you know? And it's like, they're super proud of themselves. And man, this only gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like, it is amazing. You know, what's going on and reinventing, um, you know, transportation really, you know, and these things, you know, they're, they're regulating the scooters, the whole thing. It blows my mind how many uh, electric scooters and electric skateboards I see in San Francisco. And the, uh, you seen the one wheel, the one with the, oh, yeah. the yeah. I was like riding an electric bike and this guy on a one wheel was blowing me away. You know, it's like, it blew my mind. It's like going over like all this crap in the street and it took goes, 
right over everything, you know? And there was a whole generation. I mean, I was a skateboarder, you know, but I sort of quit, you know, and a lot of people, a lot of people learned to ride, uh, ride a skateboard, you know, ride a scooter and people my age are going like, well, these guys are out of their minds. Well, you know, we're out of our minds driving cars too, you know, 80 miles an hour. I went, oof. So it's really, really interesting. So there's a lot of change going on and money behind the change and everything. And yeah. I, I just, I've, I'm jumping in that one really hard right now because the next couple of years are going to be super important to change, you know, making change. And we, fortunately we voted out our, uh, our president <sighs> and you know, that guy didn't even believe in exercise. He thought it was a waste. Of, you only came with so much energy and it was a waste. Hey, did you see that argument of his? And everybody's like, well, okay, whatever, <laughs> you know, and uh, our new president and uh, our the people in it, they, they know what a bike is, you know? <laughs> so we have half a chance, you know? So we, we have to make a lot of headway. You know? Yeah. How, how do you feel about companies like Zwift and Peloton then? Cause they're sort of introducing people to cycling, Ooh. but they're convincing you to do it at home, which is obviously not really what it's all about. So there's oh, a fitness yeah. benefit, but yeah, no, I, it's incredible. You know, it's like, uh, uh, well, Zwift, that's the gamification of all sport. And you know, it's only just begun my friend. And, you know, here they are, they're offering extra cash to people. And you know what, that this is what's going to cause a disruption within the US, UCI. They have some real competition, my friend. <laughs> it's, it's Zwift, you know, Strava, ooh, real competition. Um, Peloton, I mean, my wife loves it, you know, because it's a personality uh, driven thing in that, you know, they've got great trainers, really, you know, and it's really cool because you can do it and you can stay at home. And, you know, when you got to take care of the kids, you got to do this, you got to do that and all the stuff, it's just super convenient. All that stuff is only getting much bigger and gamification. Oh my God. What is the biggest growing, fastest growing sport right now? E-games, my friend, <laughs> you know, and now we're going to get into the thing of like, it's also, you got to be physical as well as mental. And it's a game. Oh, you watch man. This is going to grow like crazy, you know, this whole thing, you know, and you know, I talk, our people say, oh man, oh, oh, they're, they're staying at home instead of going out on the road. But uh, yeah, but I think you ought to put an ad, uh, in there and say, well, when you're ready, you know, to go on the road, here we are, you know, it's, <laughs> it's all good. I mean, <laughs> it's all good. The whole thing, you know, people being healthy. Oh my God. People exercising, you know, um, well, it's not only health, but it makes us happy. And now there was a study, there was a, another study that done this motion that we do, you know, like a skier does, a surfer does, a bike rider does, skater does. It makes you happy. Flat out, man. It makes you happy. <laughs> People look at bike riders. They say, get that smug look off of your face. <laughs> I can't help myself. I'm happy. You know? Definitely. People don't you, understand that. <laughs> you, you're someone that's always believed in the importance of health. I think you've always looked after yourself. You've always eaten well. Yeah. And you've, you've fairly recently turned 70, I think. Yeah. How, how is that? Is that paying back now? Are you feeling the benefits of 
of a of a you know healthy lifestyle and keeping fit and being active. Yeah, I mean, come on, I got six kids, <laughs> and the two are young. You know, uh, come on, man. And it's like, and so many of my friends, you know, people my age, yeah, you know, they have a hard time getting in and out of the car. You know, it's crazy. You know, it's like use it or lose it, man. It all goes away. Um, I'm, you know, I get looked after really hard. My wife's a doctor and I believe in that too. You know, really look in. Well, my grandfather was a health food nut in the thirties because the actors wanted to look good. And he used to take me to the farmer's market in uh, LA, which is a great experience. And then sitting at his table was a magnificent experience, you know? All the different things and explain what this was doing, what that was doing and everything. That was great. You know, real food all the time. And I always, uh, always tried to stay away from fast food and all that stuff, you know, and, oh man, just, you know, eat regular, eat real food, uh, pay attention. You do a blood test every now and again and look at it, you know, analyze things, what's going on in your own body. Uh, listen to yourself, you know take time, sleep, oh, basics, you know, real yeah. basics, you know, and I, you, uh, I just want to keep have, functioning. Do you ever supplement anything in your diet or do you manage to get it all through food? Well, my wife did a, uh, I use some supplements, but it's science driven. My wife, uh, there was a test uh, where you put, uh, oh, they take your blood, they put it in these Petri dishes with different things and they analyze what you're lacking. You know, mm -hmm. that's really important to do that and uh, uh, people could slam all kinds of vitamins they don't need at all you know and so i take a, a few supplements and just mostly it's just focusing on food and doing it, doing it right you know just not eating the garbage and not eating so much and it's the old thing of like uh, not cleaning my plate all the time not feeling obliged to you know and um using smaller diameter plates <laughs> <laughs> things like that you know there's there's all kinds of stuff you know that you can do that works and i've you know i get too overweight and then i'll like go on a rampage and i'll lose 20 pounds you know and i've done this about six times in my life and if i you know if i hadn't i'd be obese you know i did a we did 23 and me you know and i looked at that and my genetic thing is i tend uh towards uh, cholesterol high cholesterol and obesity Okay. You know, so just plan accordingly. Yeah. And do you still manage to ride a lot? Yeah. Yeah. I go out early in the morning, you know, I love it. You know, I just it, trap on the lights and go and there's nobody else out there. And I've been a loner this year, you know, <laughs> yeah, join the club. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. You know, uh, I mean, cause I like, I love group, you know, I loved red racing. It was so much fun. It was so strategy, the whole thing. I mean, I mean, I, I tell my writers, what are you doing, man, right now? I would so love to do. I'm so jealous. It's so much fun what you're doing. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's intense. But this is real, you know? This is really real. And, you know, it's like I <clears throat> hear the, uh, you know, the speakers, the announcers on the uh, TV and stuff, and they'll be talking about how, Miserable this guy must be. You know, actually, um, you get to that level and you take that sensation of pain and you turn it into a different sensation. I swear to God, you know, and you learn um, to tolerate all that 
and it's not such a problem as people think, you know, and, uh, it feels good. I mean, why do people do this? You know, it feels good. I loved racing, but, um, eh, it's gone. <laughs> I don't have any kind of horsepower. You know, it just doesn't come like it used to, you know, it's just, <laughs> the Watts aren't there anymore. You know? and, yeah. Fair like, enough. Yeah. You know, but, what, what bike will you kind of turn to most of the time to ride then? Is there, have you got a, a fair range in the garage these days? Oh yeah. Well, I got a, I got a mountain bike, but it's, you know, it's like where I live right now, it's about 20 minutes of riding to get to the trail. And so I ride my road bike most of the time and I've got a, um, uh, a bike set up with proper fenders and the whole nine yards too, as well, you know, so I can ride in the rain. Yeah. I, I don't mind riding in the rain at all. You know, if you're set up right, you know, it's great, you know, and, uh, it's, there's nobody else out there, you know, you're sort of all by yourself and it's nice. You know, I don't, I don't mind it at all. I go out for two or three hours in the rain. No problem. Good stuff. And that's, yeah, that's still like a pretty much every day getting out or. Yeah. Pretty religious. Yeah. yeah that's it. That's my time. For, uh, how think how do you feel if you miss it? How do I, what? How do you feel if you miss it? Uh, you know, my wife will say, you're getting twitchy. You're not riding your bike. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. <laughs> and it, it will be my wife that notices it before I do. I don't realize how I'm getting and she'll point it out. Hey, lovely. You know, that's what a partnership's for. Yeah, it's cool. It is good. This is, good stuff. we're having a good time. Yeah. So what, what do you think? mountain bikes doing well right now and what could mountain biking be doing better at? Uh, uh, well, sort of, like I said before, I mean, the trail building's fabulous. Um, the bikes themselves have changed more in the last five years than 30 years previous. And I'm psyched that people are so open. Um, uh, Travis Brown, who works for, he raced for Trek for some time. And now he does a lot of fooling around with new ideas. That young man has been fooling around with 32 and 36 inch wheels. <laughs> <laughs> and so he had an article in pink bike and the reaction was surprisingly positive. The kids are open. It's fine. It's like, you know, and here's the thing is, is it well supplied? You know, the new product and everything like with the 650 B 27 and a half, it's like everybody jumped on board and, and wow, tires, you know, rims, forks, everything was available right away. And that's, that is totally within the capability of the industry to change things and do things and check stuff out. But I'm really psyched, you know, that people are really open. The bike itself has changed quite a bit. And the other part, is that I'm really psyched that uh, people have learned to build these incredible trails because a well-built trail makes you feel like a genius when you yeah. ride and you don't fall down nearly as much, you know? And we're going to bring that to urban areas and close to urban areas. And I, I've worked with trips for kids also, you know, 78 chapters within the United States. Uh, we take inner city kids at risk on mountain bike rides, right? And I work with uh, NICA, which is uh, our high school kid thing too. And my, you know, my, and trips for kids gets these inner city kids 
but it's sort of a one-time experience. That's sort of a drag. And NICA is the kids that can afford to go on an overnighter with their parents and go to where the race is. And that needs to be changed. The kids most at need are those inner city kids. And they need to have uh, a race venue, a competition venue right there. It's just like there's a baseball field, you know, in every neighborhood in the United States. We need to have, a, you know, some type of a kid's cycle track. And the ones that are starting to do it right are like pump track, you know, and, and pump for peace is, you know, Claudio Carducci and some other people that are putting um, pump tracks mostly into Africa. And, um, you know, we need those dudes, you know, we need that stuff right here in the U S for the kids. You know, there's a big, it's really funny. Uh, uh, inner city kids are getting way into 29ers, 29 inch wheel BMX bikes <laughs> and, they do, and they do wheelies and crazy stuff and people, oh man, uh, older cyclists like myself say, oh, they're terrorists. Well, yeah, you know, but you want to turn civilized somebody that's a crazy bike rider, give them competitions. You know, it's like for anybody, you know, if you got a, if you got people that ride too fast through your town and they're mean to other bike riders and things like that, that guy needs to race a bunch of races and the guy's going to chill out because then you learn that like, there's a place where you can put all this stuff out and you got to chill out other places. And the kids too, if you got competitions and you can show yourself off in the competitions, that's where you're going to show yourself off. You're not going to have to terrorize people on the street all the time. You know, it's, it's like, uh, we're built different us humans. You know, there's a guys in general, we like the sound of a V8, a rocket blasting off. It terrorizes my wife. And you know, there's this thing, uh, have you seen the whole thing, uh, scratching and all the, you know, there's all these YouTube videos of people doing, uh, what is it? ASMRS or I can't remember the, the letters exactly, but it's all those little soft sounds and whispering. And it's something I notice. If I start talking low and soft to people, they'll sort of, especially women, they'll lean in and start listening more and more. It's another, you know, it, part of the communication is speaking the language that's accepted, right? And that language is not just the particular language, but the way you deliver it, you know, the way you say it. And what you're doing, it's like, it's how you reach people, you know, and the sounds, you know, and everything. It's really bizarre. My wife did a, uh, a study about brains, uh, female and male brains. Uh, our brains are different by nature and nurture, both, you know, and these days we'll have like, um, meetings at Trek and I'll say, Hey, look, how about you get, I mean, this meeting is going to be all women. Or at least, you know, 90% women. This one can be all men. And we come up with two completely different solutions. And so we got two solutions, not one. And it's better to have two. It really, truly is. And so you encourage this type of thinking. You encourage that type of thinking, you know. <laughs> and then you allow it to happen. And in so many cases, it would just be the guys would run the whole show, you know. And it's, <laughs> we lose out. And that's been like for track bicycle, the lowest hanging fruit. Um, and our own shops is that we actually treat people, everybody, everybody with respect. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like, um, uh, I love our mechanics. I like being a mechanic, but a lot of mechanics, 
They see the door open and say, oh, go away, go away. They're working on a bike. They're focusing on a bike. They see the door open. Oh, go away, go away, go away. Then they go over to the customer and they say, can I help you? They go away. The mechanic's totally happy because this guy's got a mild case of Asperger's disease and he likes to focus on things, you know, and he, yeah. he doesn't like to talk to people. <laughs> and it's been a problem, you know, in bike shops in particular. Bike shops say, unless you're in the club, so to speak, uh, you're not accepted. And, you know, we have been changing that. And that has been the low hanging fruit, you know, that's brought a lot of people into our shops, you know, really good. And we yeah. train people to be nice to people. <laughs> and that's still a lot of work to be done across the sport, I think, across the no. industry. Well, this whole thing, like on the roadside, uh, cross side, they don't give the women as long a race. It sends a very um, loud statement that women are weaker, you know? And I, I have found that to not be the case at all. <laughs> 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 women are tough, you know? They have to put up with us. Oh, you know, and they do better at long distance stuff, you know? This is stupid. I mean, uh, the hardest races I ever ridden are really short ones, you know? They really are. You know, the hardest event you can do is a kilometer. Ugh. You know, it's like, a, uh, it's women uh, do really well at the long distance thing and we don't give them any opportunity. And then those races, they don't give the, uh, the equal amount of exposure. And those guys, I know well, the Olympic committee, you know, France is going to uh, change things in Paris. Um, they have to, because they're going to be sued big time. You know, it's finally get her get around to that. And that's what it's going to take called the rattling of sabers. You know, you say, I got some really badass attorneys and you are, you got a big problem. Do you know that a real big problem? And then they had, uh, consult their own attorneys and their own attorneys say, yeah, you do have a really big problem. You know, you're not treating these guys fair. And the mountain bike has always treated the women fair. I mean, they run the same course in the downhill, you know, they do, a they do the same course and everything. And the time allotted is the same, you know, or it should be the same, exactly the same. You know, it's, it's been unequal, unequal, like crazy. And it, we see it in front of our eyes. It's all developing into a real sport. You know, there's so many more women that have come into the fields, you know, uh, recently. Um, and, uh, it can do nothing but get better. I, yeah, I'm looking for it. Yeah. Definitely, man. Well, we're getting uh, we're getting close to the end of our time, but we've got four questions that we always finish oh, up with. Please, we're going to hit those. <laughs> the first one: if our listeners had one hundred and fifty pounds, which is about two hundred US dollars at the moment, to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go and spend it on? Let me think. Two hundred bucks for for performance. I, you know what I like to do? I mean. Go on. I, I got two, uh, two identical extra sets of wheels, two identical bikes. If I don't, you come out in the morning, you're about ready to ride. And it's like, Oh, I got a flat or something's wrong. If your bike, you know, it's, I would have spares, you know, I always have spares because that way I can train every day. You know, that's a big deal. Make it a convenience to train. Same with like, uh, uh, your clothing and everything. You know, it's like a, uh, to be hygienic and all that. You got to have enough pairs of stuff to where you don't have to, you don't have to wash everything every single day. You got to have enough so that, you know, 
and keeps things really clean, you know, especially your shorts. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, definitely. Thing, you know, and, and, uh, but that's a big thing spares so that uh, you can't be denied a ride. Never, never an excuse. I like it. That's a good one. Yep. All right. Second question. If you could wind the clock back and sit down with yourself age 16, mm. what advice would you give him? Don't throw away so much. Take more photos of uh, what you did and don't, and don't send it out to editors that never send it back. And, you know, it's like my ex-partner, he got all my old photos and uh, he's hanging, he won't, he won't uh, let me even look at him. <laughs> that's not good it's not good so keep your own copies you know and, and it's like i've sent off photos that i took uh to a number of magazine editors and then they claim well we don't know where that stuff is and it's like oh why did i do that you know <laughs> there's a few bikes i sold off i should have never have let loose you know there's a few eh, you know and photos you know if i'd taken all these photos it would have been crazy you know i got yeah, jimmy hendrix photos <laughs> but i don't have you know jerry garcia photos <laughs> it's crazy you know when i spent all the time i spent with all those guys and i just you know back in those days when i was 16 um half the people in the scene said would say you had to ask permission and people would say that's stealing my soul please do not do that Wow. That's a bit different, isn't it? Oh. Everyone's uh, selfies all the time these days. Oh, it's totally different. <laughs> all right. Third question. If you could have a coaching session with anyone, mm. who would it be and what would you want to learn? Mm. Depends on what the next project is. Believe me. I, I, uh, I believe in good advice. In fact, yesterday I was talking to some really good advice. I can't talk about <laughs> but um no it's like i will i will always accept coaching uh from someone that has experience you know you think oh i'm smarter than them so you might be smarter than them and maybe you've done it five times whatever it is but they've done it a thousand and they've seen every complete variation that could ever be you know and the average outlooks so listen to experts find good experts and listen that is great advice all right final question what do you do every day that you feel benefits you i am thankful and i tell my wife i tell my kids <laughs> i tell myself i wake up and i go i'm alive this is beautiful <laughs> And it makes me feel good, you know, to just be alive and breathing and able to speak, you know, and able to communicate and able to walk and see. It's a miracle. Um, you know, I tell people sometimes, it's, look, you're a winner. Do you realize you beat out one, two, maybe three million spermazoia? You won. You are big winner and, uh, and yeah. a lot of people feel like losers these days it's stupid you're a winner every single one of you you got born nice and, i like it 
That's a lovely way to look at things. It's the truth. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a nice, yeah, it's a nice place to wrap up. Well, thanks, Gary. It's been super interesting and a real, a real privilege to, to sit and chat for a couple of hours. If people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, where should they look? There's the book, right, which has come out fairly recently. It has, yeah. but uh, we being inexperienced in the book distribution and actually my, my buyers internally, and, and the buyers are very, very important. Uh, within a, a distribution company, manufacturing company, because, uh, you know, it, you make money by being the first kid on the block with the latest stuff. You have a perfect supply and then you run out at exactly the right time. I mean, if you got 20% too much stuff, uh, you choke on it, you know, and you discount it. And in one month you can lose a whole year's profit, you know? So I tell these guys, you are super important. And I've had sales guys that'll tell me, Sales guys, they lie all the time. That's their business, you know, and <laughs> they, or they exaggerate. Okay. And uh, I love sales guys. They drive everything, but they'll say, man, if you had, you know, a complete supply of X product, I could have sold twice as much. And when you really drill down hard, they really uh, mean 20% more. So my buyers on the book were like, they thought it would be like, John Burke's book, my president, you know, no illustrations. They had no idea. So they ordered a real small amount and then they got a hold of it and they went, huh? <laughs> so they ordered quantity, went to the next edition, so it went way up and uh, they only brought it into the States originally. And I know my, uh, my buyer in the UK is going like, yeah, we're going to buy this, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's taking its time and I'm all right with that. You know, slow rollout is fine of me. We're not selling it on Amazon. We don't have to, you know, I don't really want to support that thing. Cause it's like, uh, of all the crazy stuff that Amazon is doing, what I really don't like. And what's a big problem here in the United States is that they, they take these, there are these things that we call bike shaped objects. They're sold in mass merchandisers. They are unrepairable bikes, and you've seen these YouTube videos of people attempting to ride it like a mountain bike, and it, it destroys itself in one ride. They're like totally unsafe, and they have they should not be able to call that thing a bicycle. It's a real problem. That's 70% of the bikes sold in the United States. This is the elephant in the room for our industry here in the United States is that uh, uh, there are all these like completely unsatisfying uh, bike-shaped objects still being sold. And Amazon does that as well, you know, misrepresentation. So we're not doing that. You know, we don't have to sell to everybody. I don't have to make a fortune off of the book. And so it'll probably sell like crazy. <laughs> it's sort of funny yeah. how it work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So uh, keep keep your eyes peeled for copies of that when it comes back into stock. And you've got an Instagram account as well, yeah, I think. Oh, yeah. Gary underscore Fisher. Yeah, I got that. And I, got a, I have a, a Twitter account as well. Excellent. Well, I'll put links to, to those in the show notes so people can find those and, and keep up with what you're up to. Good stuff. Awesome. Well, I wish you all the best for your future projects. There's some really exciting stuff in there and I hope you manage to make some great progress, especially on the, you know, improving cities and making it more cycle friendly, more fun, more accessible for people that live in those areas. And yeah, I look forward to seeing how you get on. Thank you. Thank you. Nice. Thanks, Gary. We'll talk. We'll have fun. We'll ride bikes. 
See you later. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. All right, that's it for this episode with Gary. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. A massive thanks to We Are One Composites for supporting this episode. If you want to save on their awesome wheels or their depackaged bar and stem, then as a downtime listener, you can get 15% off for the whole of January using the code 2021 Here We Go at the checkout over on WeAreOneComposites.com. That's 2021 Here We Go, all lowercase, all one word. Check out what they have to offer over at WeAreOneComposites.com now. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you fancy representing the show, then you can grab yourself a t-shirt, sweatshirt or hoodie by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop with all the proceeds going to help improve the podcast. You know what to do by now. Please keep on spreading the word about the show. Tell your rider mates and share the episodes on your social media. It all really helps me keep this thing going. Also, if you've got the time, a review on iTunes is really helpful too. All right, there's another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride. <laughs>